This episode is brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable and durable outdoor furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water stain, fade, and mold resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce brands, helping merchants unlock revenue and deliver exceptional customer service. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Steroid CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome to episode 107 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee. And today I spoke with Matt Weiss, the founder and CEO of Rind Snacks. Rind is a functional snack brand in the Better For You CPG space that offers a line of unique whole fruit snacks that maximize nutrition, minimize food waste, and are available in over 3,000 retail stores nationwide, including Whole Foods, Wegmans, and CVS. In this episode, Matt shares with us his story from growing up in Miami and having to move to Boca Raton after Hurricane Andrew destroyed his childhood home when he was just 12 years old, to starting his first company right before the dot-com bubble burst, to working in finance for nearly 20 years before starting Rind in 2017. He talks about the art of asking good questions, how attending Expo West inspired him to start Rind, and why he believes no one is born an entrepreneur. We'll see about that. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can follow us on Spotify or check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Matt, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for joining the show. I'm so excited to hear your story in building Rhine Snacks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Lee. The pleasure is mine and uh, excited to jump into our story. And thanks for listening to the show. I know you were saying earlier that you've listened to Skinny Dipped and a few of our other episodes. I, I really appreciate you tuning in. Of course. I always gravitate a little bit to the food and beverage founders. We've had some great ones, some really good ones on the show and more to come. So yeah, then their stories really resonate with me. That's awesome. And so you're calling in from New York right now? I am. Yeah. We're in New York. Rind World HQ is a WeWork uh, in lower Manhattan in, the, in a cool area called Nomad, which is north of Madison Square Park. And um, I've been in New York now like 20 years. So New York is kind of home, even though I, I wasn't, I didn't grow up here. That's cool. I lived in New York for a long time. Love that city. And where did you grow up? I grew up in South Florida. Uh, Miami was home. I grew up there as a kid until Hurricane Andrew, which was kind of a seminal moment in my life at the time. That was like, you know, one of the most powerful hurricanes ever to hit South Florida. And our community, our home was like right in the, in the eye of it. And it just leveled us. And it was, I was 12 years old at the time. And it was just like a, one of those moments that your life just takes a hard right. And my family, you know, settled with insurance, sold the house inside of two days and just moved on and built a whole new life in a different city. So Miami was zero to 12. And then high school was a town about an hour and a half north of Miami called Boca Raton. Nice. I've heard of Boca Raton. And so that is crazy. So that's a really traumatic thing to happen at 12 years old. Your house, basically, it sounds like got kind of wiped out from this hurricane. It was a watershed moment. Um, I remember vividly, uh, you know, it was like arrested development, right? It was like your childhood was definitely interrupted because it went from just running around in the backyard and everything you knew and didn't appreciate had like a finite time attached to it, you know, but 
uh, yeah, all of those memories, everything was just like cemented into those years. And, and it was a totally different experience uh, thereafter. What happened that day? Like, did you guys have to, you evacuated, I assume, but what was that like? Very stressful, very scary. I don't now looking back now, my parents were just like totally stoic. Um, I have little kids now. I don't know. I don't know if I'd be showing no emotion and just like uh, making the right cool headed decisions. But we had evacuated a couple of days before that because there was worry of a giant storm surge. We live not far from like a, a bay and they were talking about like 30 foot waves and stuff like it was you had to get out of Dodge. And um I remember the day or two before my sister and I and the whole family were like, there was this beautiful fruit tree, mango tree in our front yard that we were picking up all of these loose mangoes <laughs> that we feared would become projectiles during the storm and like break windows, whatever. And it was so naive of us to underestimate mother nature because the entire tree became a projectile like these mangoes on the ground were nothing the tree was uprooted and was in our living room and so you know I grew up really fast after that experience but it created in me if I am to draw any sort of parallel or takeaway a real sense of like resiliency I was going from eighth grade into high school and so there was going to be a new set of experiences for me but my father's commute went from like 10 or 15 minutes, like an hour and a half, every single day, back and forth, they had to build an entirely new life, talking about my parents. So and my sister went to, you know, her senior year of high school, totally different place, all new friends, all new everything, but that's life. You know, we picked our pieces and have never looked back. Wow. I mean, I can't even imagine having to go through that and evacuate and pack, I guess, as much as you can into the car on your way out, hoping that when you come back, something is still there. I'm, oof, that's a lot. You know, you know, the crazy thing that really stuck with me was like, you can't replace everything else are just things, but we were really bummed that we didn't have the foresight to take like photo albums because who everyone thinks you're coming back. Right. And instead, like all of these amazing photos were just totally ripped to shreds or waterlogged or warped. And, you know, those were irreplaceable, right? Like those family, like mementos and memories of, you know, the family tree and like family seminal events or whatever. And like everything else you can replace, but those you can't. Right. Cause it sounds like you spent like 12 years, you grew up in that house. You guys didn't move kind of in between that time. So that was really like your staple foundation of childhood was that house living. Totally. In that house. It, was, yeah. it was where my roots. Wow. And so you moved to Boca. You had to, you went to the entirely new school, new friends, new house, new everything. What was that experience like? I am a very adaptable person. And I think maybe it was forged from an experience like this, but there's, there's no other choice. So I put myself out there. I was like the shy new kid. There were a lot of kids that had continuity, I guess, coming from the middle school or whatever. But I think there were a lot of folks who were like, wow, you guys have a really interesting story. You're kind of like these South Florida refugees moving north. We weren't alone. There were lots of other Miami natives whose lives were upended. And um, honestly, it was like, it was so easy assimilating into a new neighborhood with new friends and honestly, finding ways to thrive and, and develop, um, like a, planting a new flag was, uh, was not as difficult. And, and I think the lessons learned were just like uh, the ability to just put yourself out there and be as adaptable as you can to the situations that you're going through. And so then you went to Duke University. What did you study and why did you choose that? I'll start with why I chose it first. I chose it because it was the last school that I visited and I loved every single school that I visited. So I just decided to like apply early to the last one because that was top of mind. I studied Spanish and history and a little bit of political science, clearly a bit of a confused kid, but I, I chose a liberal arts curriculum because I wanted a real breadth of experience. I wanted to study abroad, which I did with, you know, my, some of the skills I was gaining in Spanish and, you know, Miami is a very 
has a lot of amazing Latin heritage and Cuban American stories. And so I was always around a lot of Spanish and I wanted to develop more fluency there uh, and also understand like Spanish literature and uh, there's some amazing poets and whatever. So studied Spanish, uh, kind of an interesting major for what I would go on to do as an entrepreneur, but it's funny, I can't imagine being tasked or having my kids think about what they want to do with their futures when they're 20 years old and on the cusp of graduating. It's like, no one should have that figured out. And if they do, be very skeptical. <laughs> and so I enjoyed Duke immensely because I just tried my hand at a million different things and exposed myself to a million different courses and disciplines. And I always was just kind of out of the box on those things. What were some of your first jobs, I guess, before college and during college? My first job was in the food industry when I was uh, throughout high school. Um, it was very important for me to experience, you know, to, to make a little bit of money for myself. And I was an ice cream scooper at Baskin Robbins, 31 Flavors. And I would do everything in addition to that in terms of mopping the floors, closing up the shop scooping the ice cream, doing some inventory in the back freezers. I did that for a while. My friends would all come in and expect to have like free, free ice cream. And stuff. I yeah, would be exactly. coming in. I would be coming in asking for that mint chocolate chip ice cream like oh, every day. Good. So, so I enjoyed that. Um, I also like a lot of people worked at the mall. Yeah, I worked at <laughs> the mall express. Exactly. I worked for a division of Express, which was a, their men's concept called Structure for like a hot Yes, minute. I remember that one. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, I held a lot of different kind of jobs like that just to really understand the value of work and that it is hard and it is, uh, it can really be backbreaking sometimes. And it's not, there's value in all sorts of work. And I really enjoyed that throughout high school. And so you graduated and what was your first job out of college? You might not be surprised to hear this. I sort of created my own job. Perhaps that's the story of an entrepreneur. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't want to sleepwalk into taking the LSATs and ending up in law school like a lot of peers did because I didn't want to look back nine or 10 years later and be in a job and a career that didn't feel like it was my own volition to take it on, which is why I go back to having it all figured out at 20 seems like a ridiculous expectation to set upon juniors and seniors in college. It's almost like you should probably get four years of different work experience first and then go to college. But nevertheless, uh, since I didn't know what to do or want, you know, what my calling was, I turned down some investment banking opportunities to start my own company. And I did it with some other uh, dorm mates at Duke. None of us were proficient with technology or coding, but that was like a real exciting moment. This was 99, 2000. Napster was new on the scene. If you're familiar with that, you know, that was like before streaming, you would actually use university t1 ethernet to download the entire collection music collection or catalog in the world onto your you know computer and um it was i believe piracy or theft <laughs> it's another way it's called that's that was like rampant at that time though if you weren't like burning cds and like stealing music off the internet <laughs> but it was was. like it was a wild west and and it was the dawn of the internet. I remember my freshman year, you know, I got an email and that was maybe like year one of an email. And by the time I was graduating, I was like, I had the entire world at my fingertips. And that took to be in college during those years when like, it's the dawn of the information age. Wow. What an awakening. And it just, I didn't want to go into a conventional job or career because it felt like there were just too many exciting, shiny new things going on. And what, one of them was entrepreneurship. And there were a ton of, you know, in our dorm room on 24-7 was CNBC, not MTV. <laughs> and it's because every tech IPO was more exciting than the next. It all obviously came crashing down. But it was a very 
heady experience to watch all this happen and, and see these young entrepreneurs create businesses and platforms out of the ideas in their mind and do it in very fast fashion. So that was, that stuck with me. And what it led to was three of my uh, Duke buddies and I started a company that was essentially a, a college incubator. We were trying to fund, we like to say we were trying to fund like Facebook when Zuckerberg was probably in middle school <laughs> and um, look for those big ideas, whether it was social networks or cloud computing, et cetera. And the most fertile hotbeds of that activity are academia, but there weren't any accelerators of any great renown. You know, Stanford certainly had a good program and MIT did, but every other great school didn't know what to do with any technology that might've been uh, forged in their computer science labs or their dorm rooms. Yeah. I mean, they, they barely had, if they didn't have even entrepreneurship classes. (laughs) It was so, so, if you wanted that, you'd like go to the business school. But even there, it was like very business fundamentals, not like entrepreneurship startup, like that whole thing is, is such a recent past five, eight years thing. Yeah. It was happening in real time. And uh, that's what I wanted to do. That much I knew. I said, uh, I want to, you know, I want to create something out of nothing and, you know, something that had impact and meaning. And so we started this dorm room incubator program. That was our business school. We were those fifth year seniors. We actually angel investors backed this company. It was a formative 18 months of building this business and not knowing the first thing about business. Um, but knowing that our age for once was not a liability and it was actually a competitive advantage uh, because everyone else we were talking to that was interested in what we were doing had no access to the hotbed of entrepreneurship that was happening on campus. That's interesting. That's really cool. And so then what happened with that company? March of 2001 happened with that company. The dot-com bubble burst and all of the business plans and business plan competitions that we were hosting and therefore unearthing these these ideas, the quality of which was uh, subpar. Uh, If you remember when eToys and Petopia.com and just add.com to anything was coming public or getting funded, that was like the the tail of the boom. And that was when we were coming of age. So we returned the remaining funds to our investors. We're very proud of that. And it was time to get some real world experience. We all, you know, all four of us, my three other, co- you know, compatriots, we each went our separate ways. One went into real estate, one went into healthcare, uh, one went into banking. And I went to New York and met with some of the investment firms that I had, you know, tinkered with the idea of joining out of college. And uh, it's funny, the firm that I turned down for banking to do this startup was Lehman Brothers. And it would have been, you know, there's a good chance I would have been there, you know, six, seven years after that for the incredible rise and fall of Lehman uh, in New York. And instead, I found my serendipity intervened, I ran the startup, and then I actually landed at one of the most amazing old school investment firms in the country called Barron Capital, which was a highly regarded growth mutual fund. Um, So it's not a hedge fund. These are really long-term oriented investors who put a high degree of emphasis on founders and their vision, their integrity, their track record, and their ability to build big businesses from just ideas. And what an amazing place. That was where I learned. And it was such an amazing firm that I loved going into work every day and 20 years went by in a blink. Wow. That's pretty crazy, especially for entrepreneurial, you know, mindset. And that's really cool. So you were there so long, but what, it, what are some of those key things that you learned in that experience? I and mean, that's a long time to be somewhere. I'm sure you've learned so much, but what are some of the key things that have helped you as an entrepreneur? Yeah. And part of the reason why I think I stayed for so long, which is very unusual, you know, the resume, I think like a millennial these days, and I don't think I am one, is it's a virtue to hop around. And it's probably looked at as like, what, why are you staying comfortable? Why are you only at one place? What's wrong? 
I think I got a lot out of my system in that 18 months of running the startup and then seeing essentially into 9-11 and the Great Recession, like being in a stable place to build a new career felt like the right point in my life. I also felt I was learning so much. And when you're learning, it doesn't feel like work. It's hard, but it also feels like energizing all day. And that's what this firm afforded me and the people that I was around. And as far as what I learned there, the one thing I learned the most is just like the art of asking questions. So many of my, of, of people in the Wall Street world and probably in any industry, you know, I think ask questions that, not well, not softballs, they tend to elicit the same sort of boilerplate responses. And it's because they're not asking the right questions. And I do think what I saw as more of an art form was the portfolio managers and the people that I was learning from had a really unique, genuine way of disarming founders with questions like you do. Like, what's your background? Where are you from? What did your parents do? What was your upbringing like? These are not the questions a public company CEO is used to getting. They're used to getting like, why are gross margins this quarter under pressure? And it's like everyone knows, like that stuff you can read in a 10K or in financial statements or just being aware of the news. Um, what, you, what you don't get is motivation. And what is the dream? You know, entrepreneurs are like a really rare breed of people who it's just daunting to build something regardless of the degree of success. It is scary. You're vulnerable. It's lonely. Everything you've talked about with, with founders you've had on. So like there's something there in the way you're wired. Let's get at it and understand if by doing so you get a sense of the person and their ability credibly to build a big idea. Personally, I feel like whenever I have these conversations, I get, I feel like I'm like, I want to invest in this one, invest in this one, not invest in that one, not invest in, <laughs> I feel like I have a huge advantage. And I tell some of my investor friends, like, Hey, not trying to toot my own horn, but maybe you should listen to the podcast interview I did with that founder because <laughs> it'll tell you a lot. You got to get someone off their script. And I think people that come to New York, if they're companies or whatever, they're just, they're ready for the talking points. And you need to just say, look, let's have a conversation. Like, I want to understand what the future looks like and how you see it and why you're the individual and the company to do it versus, um, you know, tell me what everyone else is hearing. So what do you think makes a great entrepreneur? Uh, you said entrepreneurs are kind of a rare breed. And I agree to a certain extent, but then maybe because I'm in this world so much, I see so many people starting businesses and it is easier today to start a company than ever before. But what do you think are the qualities of an entrepreneur that kind of make the most successful type? I would think number one is, is curiosity. I do think that, you know, no one is born an entrepreneur. You, you will have other jobs before you become an entrepreneur. I was scooping ice cream, even if I didn't have like a formal job, I had internships, whatever. But there is a curiosity that gnaws at most entrepreneurs. It's like a thread that needs to be pulled when they encounter something that excites them or that they encounter a problem that there may be a better you know, solution to that they've like MacGyvered <laughs> and they want to share that with the world. And so that curiosity is like, I think the starting point, the spark that drives most entrepreneurs to ask, why not? And then I think the resiliency that we've talked a little bit about, like it is, there is just a lot of resolve that is required to actually push through every single obstacle that is going to be against you. And by definition, you're doing something totally new and novel that hasn't been done before. There is no roadmap. It's going to be brutal. And so if you have, if you have conviction and you're passionate and you think you've identified some unique insight, you can't just have that. You have to match it with like a unyielding willingness to get punched in the face and keep getting back up and asking for more. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. 
Spring is in the air, which means summer will be here in no time. But is your patio or backyard ready for action? With Outer, you can get your outdoor space decked out with the best looking sustainable sofas, chairs, coffee tables, eco-friendly rugs, and don't forget their celebrity favorite, bug shield blanket to keep those mosquitoes away. Want to check it out for yourself? Browse over a thousand outer customers' backyards online and visit a neighborhood showroom in your own neighborhood to experience outer products in person before you decide to buy. And when you decide to buy, you can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture purchases with the promo code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. With the rising costs of acquiring new customers, retention is a key focus for DDC brands. And creating outstanding customer experiences shouldn't be costly or a burden for your customer support team. This is exactly why Gorgeous is so great. They centralize all of your customer communications into one beautiful dashboard, personalizing each experience along the way, which not only helps you retain your customers, but also saves you time and increases revenue. Gorgeous works with over 9,000 brands, including Princess Polly, Olipop, and Baksu. So if you'd like to be one of them, head on over to Gorgeous.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast to get two months free. That's two months free of Gorgeous when you head over to Gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. After, you know, these 20 years of working this awesome job you had, what shifted for you to want to start Rind? You know, I think they call it like the seven-year itch. And for me, it was like, I guess, three times the seven-year itch. I probably had it three times. Exactly. And I was like... But again, when you're at a place that is so special and the later on you get in your life, I started Ryan when I was in my late 30s, early 40s, a certain amount of inertia takes hold. I got married. I had three kids. I raised the family in New York. And all of those things probably make someone less risk averse, not more. Yeah, that's for sure. It's an expensive place. It's an expensive place. Yeah, kids are somewhat needy. <laughs> and, and expensive. Uh, yeah, exactly. Expensive. And so I don't know. I just, but but if anything, it sort of counterintuitively cranked up the risk factor in me because it felt like, wow, I'm kind of just watching the movie of me go by and I can be in this for the next 30, you know, plus years and be really, really happy, but always be saying, that notebook that I filled with half-baked ideas and really cool concepts that I never followed through on, what happened to that guy? <laughs> what did happen? What did happen? So what happened was, honestly, like I learned so much and I was exposed every day to fascinating entrepreneurs who had achieved the ultimate success in taking their company public and in growing their business from literally an idea to you know, a multi-billion dollar company in some cases. And that itch in me hearing their stories like day after day, just sitting in amazing conference rooms and hearing entrepreneurs, whether it was someone like Elon Musk, one of the most interesting of all, or Ethan Brown who founded Beyond Meat and decided to like totally disrupt the trillion dollar uh, animal meat industry. At some point, because I had had some earlier taste of entrepreneurship, I wanted to be on the other side of the table. And I wanted to at least give it a go and not just be an idea person, but actually take some action. And so the last several years at the firm, I had been gravitating to um, food and beverage companies. Uh, it's just, I was not like a software or healthcare or biotech sort of analyst. I was, oh, I really like snacking and I really like this new thing called oat milk. And I think this is going to be big. And I, I just gravitated to like big mega trends within consumer staples. And my travels and research took me to 
some of the most exciting events, one of which just happened last week in, in LA called Expo West, which is I fondly refer to as the Super Bowl of snacks. And I went to that as an investor. None of those companies we could invest in, they're all small, but it was more to like spot trends, plant-based meat, uh, probiotics, you name it. And as soon as I hit the trade show floor, it was a light bulb moment. I, I felt like I had found my tribe. Everybody there was passionate about something. Before that moment, before you were kind of in the doors and on the floor of these like incredible startups and feeling that energy and being like, oh, here's like the startup kind of really early stage world almost, right? Before that, when you were more around the Elon Musks and the, the Ethans um, from Beyond Meat, were you ever kind of feeling a, a bit of self-doubt throughout that time? You said day after day, you're kind of seeing these inspiring people and you're wanting to be like that, right? But what was holding you back before that event, before all of that happened? What were you feeling that was keeping you back from actually just diving in? Was there some self-doubt, uh, feelings of self, like, who am I to do this? Can I actually be, am I like them? Can I do that? Like, is, was, did that ever go through your mind? you know, questioning, like, what do I want to do? And I don't know that I was very good at being a financial analyst. I think I was okay at it, but I wasn't listening or paying enough attention to what I was good at, which was storytelling. And which was, I found ways to <laughs> create value at the fund in doing so. And thankfully I had a mentor, founder of the firm who uh, just an amazing individual who afforded me a lot of great creative outlets to to my mind and not just be building spreadsheets all day. But I just came up with every excuse in the book, like every other would-be entrepreneur probably does. Everything stops you. Oh, someone else has this idea. Oh, I don't have the time. You know, this wouldn't go anywhere anyways. And it's, you're an idea person until you take a first action step and then you become an entrepreneur. But if you don't take any actions and you just fill a notebook with ideas, you're not an entrepreneur. Yeah, but then they, there's the people too that do a few steps. They'll do like the step one, two, three, and four, but not make it to five, <laughs> you know? They'll put up the website, they'll like do the things that look cool, <laughs> but not the behind the scenes stuff that's no fun. Maybe the real definition is, as I'm thinking out loud, is like, until you've sold like a hundred units of something, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you've really gotten like feedback and, and someone's told you, this is good, this sucks, <laughs> you know, that you know, like, all right, I, I got to keep going at this or this ain't for me. Yep. <laughs> that's a, that's a good line to draw <laughs> from, <laughs> from dreamer to doer. You have to have sold at least a hundred units. <laughs> it's. It's not easy. And like, and like all hundred of those have to be non-family and friends, yes. like legit randoms. <laughs> well, if you have a hundred family and friends, you must be really popular, right? If you can convince that many people in your close circle. You can coax enough people to get you a little bit of a start. You really do have to be like, and I remember it was like our first sale was like on Amazon. And I was like, I don't know this person. This one, I genuinely don't know. Like, and who is this? And how did they find us? Like, yeah, like, who, who is in, like, Memphis that we know? And they're, like, calling on. It's like, we don't know anybody. It's like, okay, that's, this is amazing. Wow. And that's a cool feeling, right? When you have that first person, you're like, I have no idea why this person or how they found us. But fingers crossed, they love this product. And how do we, how do I get this feeling again? It's like an adrenaline rush, I think. hundred percent. hundred percent. The first two years... It was all a side hustle. I, I really did try to have the best of both worlds and hedge. I was afraid to leave a 20-year career and a life I knew and had put my family, built the family around. And I really did want to see that all-important traction in the market before I took the plunge. And fortunately, I was transparent and honest with my boss and uh, they let me do it nights and weekends and slowly but surely as these things go, it takes over your life in the best way. You were working on it you said maybe for two years as a side hustle before going full-time. Yep. That's awesome. Yep. When was the expo and the two-year journey? What's that gap in between? 
Yes. Yeah, so I incorporated the company in 2017 and we had our first sale in 2018 and I had probably been, went to my first expo in like 2015. So I had had like two years of like, wow, this industry is exciting and all the action is early stage. And there are like huge trends that are just starting that could be big, big tailwinds for a new brand if it's positioned right and it has a great concept and story. And so I was like studying the years from 15 to 17. Like it wasn't like, I where is the gap in the market? And I'm going to fit, like, I don't think you can create great companies by trying to like research the heck out of them that way. For me, it was, I love to snack. There have been clear trends that no one is eating three square meals a day anymore. We eat like 10 micro meals. Flavors have gotten bigger and bolder. When we were kids, it was like Sunny D and Capri Sun and Lunchables. And like now my kids are like, can I get some Szechuan chili crisp to put on my, you know, mochi? And you're just like, wait, what? And they're like, no, no, that's really good with hot sauce. So taste buds are shifting, taste profiles are shifting. All of this was like really exciting to me. And then I tried to square that with what felt to me like the ultimate snack category that should be single ingredient, which is dried fruit, which somewhere along the way got really boring, <laughs> really sad, and treated like a candy where it was like pumped full of added sugar, sulfur dioxide, which is the most common preservative to extend shelf life and enhance color. And it was like, how are we living in a world of like kale chips? And yet like this dried apricot is glowing like radioactive orange. Like why is that? Why is, how can the, both of those things be true at the same time? And so, you know, like a lot of entrepreneurs in this space, for me, half the fun was just walking a Whole Foods or a grocery store and seeing the newness that was popping up on shelves. And this one aisle of the store was just like left behind in like the stone ages. And it was dried cranberries and red boxes of raisins and a little bit of dried mango, but it was like, man, someone needs to shake this up. And I was looking for some of those cool flavors and I just, I couldn't find them. So I started trying at home with a, you know, a home dehydrator I bought off Amazon and like a mandolin slicer and started tinkering. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of Ryan. That's really cool. So you started this idea. Do you remember that kind of aha moment time when you realized I'm really curious about dry fruit and what is going on here? And I guess it sounds like it's obviously a process of different moments that kind of combine to say oh, that lead to, okay, I'm going to start devoting my time to this and this is what I want to do. <laughs> but absolutely. I remember it well. I think there are always you know, most people, if you just, if they're, if they're uninitiated and you just say, yeah, I'm in the, I'm in the fruit snack space, or, you know, what do you know about dried fruit? I think what comes to mind are prunes, raisins, apricots, and that sort of stuff. And when I was in California on a business trip around that time, 15, 16, I stopped off at a farmer's market in Santa Monica and being from the East Coast, I had not been really exposed to just like the amazing bounty of produce that is available in California that doesn't make its way to the East Coast. And now I understand why. And so whether it was like some of the amazing citrus that I was exposed to, like pomelos, tangelos, and like, I was like, what these words, are these English words? Like I've never heard of these. Where are these in, you know, in Fairway back in New York City? They just, they're not there. And at one of these stalls was a farmer who, I guess the most overripe fruit that he couldn't sell fresh, uh, he would dry. And I tried a dried persimmon that like, was an eye opener for me. It was a game changer. And it was the one fruit that set me on this path. It sounds so ridiculous, but it was like, uh, if I ever 
am the type and I'm not the type to have a vanity plate, uh, it probably has to say persimmon because this dried persimmon was a revelation. And it is a cross between like a peach and a mango, but it also has like a sweeter sweet potato vibe. I have never had one or heard of one. So I'm just taking it all in right now. I'm going to go to the grocery store and find one of these. You don't want to eat it fresh. They're not that good. They're far better dried. It, you know, this is, and in Latin, you know, I totally geeked out on persimmons for a while. The word is derived from Latin and it means fruit of the gods. You're just like, okay, this is like a really high bar. I need to know more. And when I tasted it and, and you will, and I will send you some, you'll wonder why dried fruit hasn't innovated or advanced because all I could think about and my wife heard ad nauseum when I came back was like, I want to start a dried persimmon chip company. She's like, wow, that is narrow. <laughs> but that's how it all started. That was the fruit that kickstarted it all. Interesting. So is that what you started with? You, you started drying them at a home and, and that was it? Couldn't even get persimmon in the East maybe in some like, you know, Chinatown markets. Um, so it's prized in, in Asian culture, by the way, so I should mention that. So what I did was I just started doing the research. I was still an idea person. I wasn't an entrepreneur yet. And I read up on various commercial scale dehydrators and growers in California's Central Valley, just like the fruit salad bowl of the West. And endless phone calls, just dialing away and, and asking questions and understanding minimums. And if I wanted to buy a lot of persimmons or a case of persimmons, how much lead times do you need? And, you know, can I pay with PayPal? <laughs> it was just like, I didn't know what I was doing. And, but I started putting some pieces of a puzzle together of a very rudimentary supply chain. And in the meantime, I was getting samples from a lot of these suppliers. I was testing some at home, and so I was drying a lot of melon. I thought dried melon would make a killer uh, fruit snack because it's a huge water content fruit, like 97% water. And so when you remove all of the water from a watermelon, you are concentrating the sugars to such a degree that the remaining fruit is like cotton candy because um, it's all sugar, but it's not added sugar, it's fruit. So I tried that. Again, you can't find that sort of stuff anywhere. So I knew when I broadened out the concept from just persimmon to really unique fruits that I needed to find suppliers uh, that could help me do it and make it into something bigger than my own kitchen. The way the concept came to be though, because the, the concept is now much bigger than just unique fruits dried. Well, and it's, yeah, it's also focused on rinds, no? Exactly. Right. Exactly. So how did you, how and why did you kind of shift? So if you're, you know, I wanted to build an idea that had legs and that wasn't, I wasn't putting all my persimmons in one basket uh, that I thought was cool, but 90 other, 90 other people might think is, you know, is not for them. And what was much more universal and a bigger idea was the notion of, one, fighting food waste, and two, the nutrient density that is uniquely concentrated in fruit peels and fruit rinds. And I think a lot of people have heard that, and maybe there's someone in their life who's someone perhaps like more of like a, a bit older, comes from a different generation, maybe reminded them of that, that like all the nutrients from the skin. And that was very true for me, my story, but I think a lot of people hear that, but like they just, they don't remember it or they don't quite get it. And there are like scientific reasons why when fruits are growing in an orchard, the skin or the rind is the most nutrient potent part of the fruit because it's exposed to the elements and the environmental stress of the growing season, that it has the most antioxidants and flavonoids and fiber, et cetera. And so I had read an article that I thought was really cool on the topic. And then there had always been a figure in my life who's loomed large, and it's my great-grandmother. She had a health food store in the 20s and 30s in Flint, Michigan. And so there was a current of entrepreneurship in the family. And 
a current of natural foods as well. Her store was like, it was called a Helen Seitner Stay Well Health Shop. And she had these standards where like she would not carry refined flours. She would not carry white bread. And this was at a time when like Wonder Bread was the new luxury. And like, no, you need like the full wheat germ and the bran and like, she lived to a hundred. I remember her vividly when I was eight, 10 years old. And That's awesome that you like knew your great grandmother. I, I actually knew my great grandmother as well. She lived to 106. And so she was actually a very big part of my life growing up. Wow. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah. I didn't think anybody was older than great grandma, Helen. That is incredible. I know, right? 106. Wow. They probably would have been buddies. I know it would have been. I think there's a, there was a real like reverence that I held for her. She was like a very interesting woman. It, you have to be one. She was a product of the great depression Two, She was a female entrepreneur. Like I got to believe all the cards were stacked against her. And then, and then three, she was preaching like healthy foods before kale was cool. And like, People just wanted meat and potatoes, like amazing. And she was ju she was juicing and whatever. So hard not to have been inspired by her and her story. And it just came all rushing back to me when I was putting the pieces of brine together. That's how we built it. Honestly, I, I was doing it all still on the side. It felt like I had a foot in both worlds. It was very untenable. And I couldn't sleep because I was just what was guiding my excitement was the business, but what I needed to do, you know, cerebrally was earn a living and support my family. And at some point I had to make a decision and I had just been putting it off and putting it off until the business started to gain traction. And there were a couple messy moments in that, that got us there. So when did you feel like it was the right time? Yeah, I know it was two years, but what did that kind of look like? Or did you set that goal ahead of time and say, when we hit this mark, I know that I can be full-time on this? Or was it primarily a financial decision, I'm sure, mostly? Or how did you know when to take the leap? Hmm. I don't know that there was one thing that said, well, if this, if this flips, then I'm all in. It was an accumulation of little things that gave me the confidence to do it. One of which was an investor who had been following our story and seeing me at the trade shows uh, based in New York, who I had become close with through the process, who basically kind of gave me an ultimatum and was like, you know, either you go, I'm not funding your hobby, either you do this full time and I, I'll be your first institutional investor or I'm moving on. And he's like, I believe in you. I think you have something here, but you're crazy not to look at what you've done moonlighting for two years. Imagine if you put your whole heart into this and then built a team and really hit the gas. And there was somebody else in my life who shared with me a really unique insight that resonates to this day, which is, uh, and that was what was just like, it flipped the switch, which is sometimes the safer decision is the riskier decision, right? If I had stayed in this life, status quo would have been great. But that might actually have been far riskier than exploring what I'm doing today, which has completely enriched my life. And it's not enriched in monetary means because that is the opposite. <laughs> It is in expanding my skills, my network, my leadership, every like having a team of people I'm responsible for now when I never had that before, like I just growth as a person, it would have been a much bigger risk to have just lived one node and one path without knowing you could be so many different things. The safer decision is the riskier decision. That's that's interesting. That's like a flip on the on the script a little bit, but and I totally see what you're saying, and it's true. So, congrats on taking that major leap. And so, how has it been so far? And what are some of the the biggest challenges that you faced along the way? What has been some of the hardest moments in being full time on this? So that investor 
when I did make the leap, did lead our first seed round of capital. And that's when stuff became real. And at the time, I, my brother-in-law, who is uh, you know, one of my closest friends, sort of had been a trusted advisor through Ryan's earliest years, had been watching this and was like, huh, maybe I will also leave my financial career and we'll build something together. And we have very interesting, you know, complementary skill sets. So it has really worked out well. So the confluence of the first capital into the business that wasn't my own, and I had put a lot of my own bootstrap capital in, plus another person to go through this journey with and to help me help shore up where I was weak and vice versa, got us off to a great start until our first launch into retail in March of 2020. And I think a lot of brands have that oh shit moment, but no excuses, adaptable, adaptable, resilient. And it was honestly one of the best things that happened to us was being able to now build a business with no baggage, with no legacy exposure to channels that had gotten destroyed. Think if you were like reliant on corporate campuses for snacking or airports or whatever uh, in March of 2020. And instead we looked at the world and said, boy, we can build this brand for a totally new post-COVID world. And that's, that's what we started to do. We saw huge pockets of demand in alternative channels. Uh, it was still just the two of us all 2020. And we grew the business about five-fold that year. Again, the year before was side hustle year, but still it was like in a year that was stiff headwinds, we really started to like nail it. And the biggest uh, of which was a grocery subscription box customer of ours called Hungry Root, which is an amazing business. There's a, a number of them similar as a curated dietary specific uh, groceries delivered to your door. You can imagine that value prop during peak quarantine was uh, ex extremely resonant and that, that business was like a rocket ship. And so we had a small foothold in that on that platform and it, it was an eye-opener because we shortly thereafter started working with imperfect foods thrive market fresh direct good eggs and it was fascinating to me because many of these business models didn't exist five ten years earlier so it was exciting to be on the cusp of a new channel of you know of trade with a new brand and learn it together and so you were able to focus on these other channels and kind of grow the business that way. What were some other things that you've done to really propel and grow the business? You have to, you have to share a vision with customers and stakeholders and everybody else about a company that can stretch into multiple categories with a value proposition that works across all of those categories. And it's a very simple concept that we are a snack that keeps the skin on, right? It's not rocket science. There is oftentimes one ingredient and our secret ingredient is not something we add. It's what we don't subtract. And People get that. It's in our value prop. It's in our name. But the idea is bigger than fruit. And that's what I mean by platform is it's not, we have aspirations to move into much larger addressable markets. And what it requires is something with skin on. And that applies to a lot of categories in the store, whether it's root vegetables, whether it's nuts roasted in their skins, whether it's legumes, there's a lot of skin out there. <laughs> and you've got lots of skin in the game. <laughs> you got a lot of skin in the game. There's a lot of nutrients there. And there's a lot of wasted, uh, ed perfectly edible components to the food system that is in aggregate becoming bigger and bigger problem. And that is the intersection where Ryan sits, which is better for you function. You are getting more fiber and vitamins by keeping the rind on. More flavor too, which we didn't get into, but there's a reason why we zest oranges and lemons on top of foods that we love to enhance them. It gives, it gives those foods zing and then sustainability, which is we can have real impact 
there are 8 million tons of edible peels associated with just citrus waste alone. And when you think about an orange juice manufacturer, all of the oranges going in end up as rinds coming out. And where do they go? They go to feed cattle and pigs. It's a feedstock. Uh, it's a pretty high fiber feedstock, but it is clearly, in our view, has a higher and better use than what is currently out there. That's interesting. And so, well, at least it doesn't go in the trash, I guess. These. Um, I mean, there's just too much of it that it, a lot of it does go to landfill, but a good portion of it is carted away and, and treated as a feedstock. Uh, now, what Rind is all about, to any listeners that aren't familiar, we are not a bag of peels. <laughs> We're not just rinds. We're the whole fruit and a snackable slice of the whole fruit, which includes, you know, the flesh and the rind, sort of what you might like what you might see at the end of a beautiful craft cocktail. And instead of enjoying the drink, enjoy the garnish. That's kind of the idea because it's full of flavor and nutrients. It's snackable and you can do some really amazing things with texturally with the rind that you don't get from traditional chewy dried fruit. Yeah. I mean, you have some crazy flavors, the kiwi. I mean, I've never had dried kiwi, so I'm excited to try that. And you have like, what it looks like. They don't all look like hearts, but this one does that. It looks like and, a heart. That's hilarious. And in crispy. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Kiwis are, that is like our, one of our after persimmons are like most talked about. Uh, offering and watermelon it's really interesting what you guys have done it's very innovative and i'm excited to check it out what's one of the biggest things that you've learned about being a leader and managing a team i'm still learning it <laughs> yeah a bit of a reluctant ceo but now i am really relishing it because i've never had a team that's reported to me and i love feeling that sense of responsibility. It is an awesome responsibility, but being able to set the tone and the culture and the core values and establish those and to do it in a hybrid remote world that we live in or had been, have been living in, it's been a real challenge, but one that's worth pursuing. And so now we have a seven person, you know, full-time workforce. We feel like we're on like a perma zoom where we just like, we've, we see each other as rectangles every day. We've had number, a number of offsites, whether it's at an expo West, or whatever, where in many cases we're meeting for the first time, but it's all felt like family and being able to shape that culture as the face of the organization um, has been really, really special. And we try to think like a big company in that regard, even though we're small, you know, we, our number one core value is uh, super cheesy, but it's uh, kill them with rindness, which is this idea of, you know, the kill them part is be super competitive and win in the marketplace. And when you need to be a stone cold assassin, be one, but do everything, conduct yourself, your relationships with partners, customers, et cetera, you know, really get, bring these snacks to market in the kindest way possible. That's awesome. And so before we wrap up here, what kind of final advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? You have to be willing to plant endless seeds. You think you've like sent out enough emails on the day, send one more. You know, you've been thinking about reaching out to so-and-so or connecting with so-and-so on LinkedIn, send them that DM. You never know if you're trying to get a hold of someone that is the uh, rock star in your industry, be super humble and ask for advice, not anything else. And you might get a response and that sets you on your way. And you don't, you don't know that if you don't try and you don't plant endless seeds. So that's another way, I guess, of just sort of saying network relentlessly, but people genuinely want to help. And with, at, at any step of their journey, you know, people, I was asking people every step of the way, what was it like to go through this, to go through that? Like, you know, can I get a spec sheet on these fruits, on that? And just 90% of them went unanswered, but the 10% that did were enough to build something around and get started and always send that one extra email. That's one. 
yeah, I'll leave it at that. That's the soundest advice I can offer. Awesome. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today and, and sharing your very inspiring story. I'm excited to see what is next for Rind. Uh, thanks so much for making the time today. Thanks, Lee. It's been great spending this time with you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.